The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. Welcome to a new episode of Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast. Your host today is Reinhard Schumacher, and my guest for this episode is Adam Leeds. Adam is an assistant professor at the Department of Slavic Languages at Columbia University. Adam is an anthropologist, or more precise, an anthropologist with an interest in the history of economics. Adam was awarded this year's Joseph Dorfman Best Dissertation Prize by the History of Economic Society. In his thesis, Adam studies the development of mathematical economics in the Soviet Union and after its dissolution in 1991 in Russia. The full title of Adam's thesis is Spectral Liberalism on the Subject of Political Economy in Moscow. Adam covers quite a long period of time, about 100 years, from the Russian Revolution to the late 1990s and early 2000s. I'm very happy to talk about this thesis with Adam today. Adam, welcome to Cetrus Never Paribus. Thanks for having me, Reinhardt. Before we start um, with your thesis, I want to ask you another question. As I mentioned, you're an anthropologist in the history of economic thought. It seems to me, at least, that there's not too much attention paid to anthropology. How is it the other way around? Do anthropologists study the history of economics and pay attention to the works of historians of economics, um, or are you just a maverick in anthropology? Uh, okay, so the answer to that question, uh, the question of how does anthropology approach economic thought, it really has... Um, approached economic thought through two avenues. So the first um, is a bit of an older trend of thought, which you know, we call economic anthropology, which is the anthropology of economic life, um, economic interactions among the various sorts of peoples that anthropologists study. And this work has always had some awareness of classical political economy, um, but most of all, Smith and Marx. Uh, it's taken its inspiration there, and Karl Polanyi. Um, it has not involved a deep interaction with the history of economic thought. It has found various different uh, modes of inspiration uh, to study the economic life of, of various peoples. The In the 60s, 70s, 80s, there were the so-called formalist substantivist debates in which anthropologists alleged that economists – um, especially neoclassical or marginalist economics, uh, presupposed a more universal and formal approach to economics than anthropologists who could study the particular forms, mechanisms, um, the particular forms of exchange, the particular meanings attributed to them in different, in different settings around the world. And here, a lot of the inspiration wasn't coming from history of economic thought. It was coming from uh, early... Uh, early anthropology, uh, so Malinowski on the cooler ring, Mouse on the gift, the uh, Evans Pritchard on the newer, um, in which you know different forms of objects are entering into different forms of exchange that around which coalesce different social relationships that mediate communal life. This particular form of economic anthropology persists to the, to this day, but it has very little subdisciplinary coherence anymore. 
There isn't so much uh, a lot of growth in these directions. There isn't so much a unified economic framework, and it doesn't draw that much from history of economic thought. The other direction that, that anthropologists have become interested in, in history of economic thought is under the rubric of neoliberalism. And anthropologists became interested in neoliberalism not through studying the transformations in Reagan's America, Thatcher's Britain, uh, or later governments in Western Europe, but through um, encountering the effects of IMF and World Bank programs in the developing world. So the anthropologist's approach to neoliberalism began as a critique of development thought in the 80s and 90s. And this was initially less concerned with the history of economic thought as lineages of theoretical development than it was as looking at the interactions of economic theory posed as policy with the realities of economic life uh, that anthropologists were already in the process of studying around the world. So, you know, the fam a famous book, for instance, is James Ferguson's Anti-Politics Machine, where he looked at World Bank programs around creating markets, labor markets, markets for cattle, um, and infrastructure projects in Lesotho. Uh, but as time has gone on and, and uh, the literature on neoliberalism has become more complex and started to uh, become much more historically engaged with the history of economic thought, uh, anthropologists have followed that trend and have um, begun to take into account the, the more robust intellectual genealogies that are being developed. And that is literature that I found inspiration from. But for me, I came to studying history of economic thought not so much from the perspective of the critique of development, though that was interesting to me, and not so much from the older um, substantivist economic anthropology, but as an anthropologist of science and technology. So my inspirations were from the broader interdisciplinary science and technology studies literature, and my, my, my gamble was that you could apply the same sort of approaches, methodologies, um, theorizations used to study the hard sciences and the biomedical sciences to the history of, to, to, to economic sciences. Then let's turn to your gamble, as you called it, or your research, and let's start with the choice of your topic of your thesis. Well, in the history of economics, the development of mathematical economics has been the focus of quite some research recently. This research usually focuses on um, development in the Western world and especially, of course, in the United States. I guess most scholars would argue that this is where the crucial advancements took place. So why did you decide to study the history of mathematical economics in Russia instead? Well, when this, this project changed dramatically from its initial framing, uh, and this is common in anthropology because you formulate a problem before you go to the field, and then after spending one or two years there, you often find that um, the questions that you arrived at the field with have been transformed dramatically. And when I arrived in Russia in 2010, I had an, envisioned a very different project. I had envisioned a project that would attempt to look at contemporary economic governance in Russia, that is to say in the year 2010. And in particular, I wanted to do a sort of Latourian study in which I looked at 
um, the complex of different forms of actors, uh, different forms of knowledge, different ways that they, the implementation, and that's not the right word, but the mediation of knowledge was playing out on the ground in Russian economic life by starting with Russian economic think tanks. So my initial goal was to look at think tanks as a nexus between um, the political world more broadly and the world of governance and see how particular economic policies uh, were constructed in that intersection. But when I got to Russia, I discovered that the think tanks that I thought existed because I had been looking at their websites and reading the documents that created them were very, very thin structures. They had very minimal staffs. They might have none. Uh, they uh, might be basically just a website and a business card. And these very, very thin structures were overlaying much more thick institutions that had been inherited from the Soviet Union. So the, the various large institutions of the Academy of Sciences, um, the structures of the Ministry of Economic Development and Ministry of Finance. And when I began to explore those pre-existing networks, I encountered economists who fit into no categories that I understood from my reading in the history of Western 20th century economics. I couldn't make sense of the theoretical schools that they were coming from. I didn't understand the tools they were using uh, or how they were using them. I didn't understand the way they defined problem areas, uh, topics, subdisciplines. So I was forced to push back further into history, really to define my units of analysis, to figure out who the different kinds of actors were and why they had come into these particular institutionalized networks and configurations with each other. And so I really pushed back generation by generation. And it was when I was, I was forced all the way back into the oldest people I could find, which was people who began their careers in the 1950s and 60s, which was the period of the birth and quickly the high watermark of Soviet mathematical economics, in which, you know, and I can get into this, when I, when I pushed back into the 50s, 60s, 70s, I could begin to discover both the, the roots of why Soviet mathematical economics took its own particular distinctive paths, as well as the very interesting transnational linkages and, and borrowings and points of intersection with Western mathematical economics. So let's back up a bit. As I understand you, you went into the field and had some, um, what you would call innovative research, I guess. If I understand you correctly, there were not many sources covering the history of Russian economics, at least in English. Are there any sources in Russian that were helpful, or did you have to collect all your information by fieldwork? So there was very little for me to draw on. There was some literature in English on the 1990s on the so-called neoliberals of Yegor Gaidar's government, which was Yeltsin's, um, Yeltsin's first government and the economic advisors of it which tended to strongly em emphasize um, the influence of both Western economics and Western economic institutions like the IMF, which I quickly found I was overdrawn. And then there was an older literature on Soviet mathematical economics, a small literature, but it does exist, which hadn't been updated since the late 1980s. And there was only a handful of books. They were written primarily by economists, Uh, who were operating primarily in a reconstructive mode, 
and they were trying to recognize the economics they knew from the West in Soviet Russia insofar as they could. They were uninterested in that which did not look much like Western economics. So they, they cast a very narrow net and like left out a lot of things that were happening because they were primarily trying to, they were benchmarking Soviet economics. They were seeing, is it up to the Western level? Is it up to our standards? Are there any advances there that we can use? So there's a handful of books. Um, the best book, the best books are written by a Finnish economist named Pekka Sutila, who did get deeper into trying to understand Soviet frameworks of thought than really anybody else. And there's a, a handful of journal articles because during the Cold War, it was a common uh, type of article published even in top Western journals that would, you know, there was a sort of a, a sort of review article format in which uh, an author would do sort of a review of contemporary Soviet economics at that moment and like update you on the last five years of research. But again, looking for those those aspects of Soviet economics that would be most familiar to Western economics. So there really wasn't literature that was as comprehensive as I would like it to be, nor exploring the larger cultural and historical connections in the way that a historian actually would. So your main um, material, your main sources were then interviews and also archival material or books written in Russian? So there's almost nothing in Russian on the history of Russian economic thought. Um, there's really two books, one of which ends in the 1960s, another strange but interesting book, which focuses, which does cover the entire late Soviet period, but only for one school of Soviet economics. And then there's actually, there's, there's maybe like two useful books on non-mathematical Soviet economics, but there's really very, very little in Russian as well. So I was forced to rely on interviews, which is exactly what everyone in anthropology wanted me to do, because among anthropologists, the very fact that I was studying people who expressed themselves in books, expressed themselves in, math in highly mathematical treatments, was not normal. Um, so the direction that most anthropologists wanted me to take was to make this as much like normal anthropology as possible, which means that I should spend as much time with the people interacting face to face uh, as I could. So the way the, the form that this took for me was primarily I did have an office in a, a Russian economic institution, ec economic uh, uh, thought uh, center. Um, so I was able to hang out in the cafeteria, uh, hang out in the lobby, go to seminars, um, observe insofar as you can economists working, um, though so much economic economic theory is really a very solitary form of labor. So I, I had I had that sort of more classical field work, and then I had an enormous amount of oral history interviews. So I did probably like 200 oral history interviews, uh, most of which are about two hours long. So I, I have an enormous amount of recording in which I, you know, sort of retraced people's lives with themselves and their research and what they worked on and why they worked on it, why it was important to them, how they thought about the history that they were living at different moments in time. And these from uh, multiple generations. So everything from uh, people who were graduate students today or young professors, uh, all the way up to, you know, the oldest men I could find in their 80s. Okay, so let's discuss the insights you gained from all this fieldwork and thus uh, the content of your thesis. 
Um, I want to start with the title of your thesis, actually. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, the title is Spectral Liberalism on the Subject of Political Economy in Moscow. Now, the first two words seem crucial to me, and I have to admit I was not sure what spectral meant when I first read it. My, read it. My best guess was that it referred to spectrum as in spectral colors and that you meant the spectrum of liberalism. But um, when I, looking at the thesis, it became quite clear to me that my guess was wrong. In fact, spectral, as I understand it, refers to specter. In the history of ideas, and this is probably best known, and this might be its only well-known use, uh, in the translation of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels' Communist Manifesto, which contains the sentence, the specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. In your story, it is, however, not communism or socialism that haunts, but a specter, uh, as a specter, but it is the specter of liberalism that is haunting in the Soviet Union. Can you explain that? So, uh, and again, this is related to how my research began, which was focused on the present in Russia. And I was trying to understand that present. Now, when I got to Russia and when I started to begin to reconceptualize my project more historically, the historical question that I found myself trying to answer was where did post-Soviet Russian liberalism come from and what was it? or what is it? Um, so I was starting to look for roots of liberal sensibilities, liberal thought, liberal values, liberal policies in late Soviet Russia, where their very existence should be hard to understand, hard to explain. So what were the transformations in late Soviet society, late Soviet culture, late Soviet economic thought that could imagine, that could enable um, a form of liberalism to emerge in the 19, by the 1990s. And as I approached this problem, I encountered repeatedly the difficulty of the people that I was speaking with to, to answer this question. I would say to someone who, you know, someone perhaps who is a, a famous liberal, like the newspapers call them, you know, liberals. And I would talk to people and I would be say, so, so you're a liberal, right? expecting the answer to be yes, because everyone identifies them as such. And very often they would say, well, you know, maybe in some sense. I don't know, what does liberalism even mean? And that was a strange answer. Or I would say, well, what does liberalism mean in Russia? Or what does it mean to you? And they would go, well, you know, and they wouldn't really want to answer the question. Well, this was a, a big puzzle for me and, um, and eventually led to the title of the dissertation, when I was interviewing an economist, um, though we might actually think of him more as a sociologist in the way he actually operates, who was part of the reform government in 1992-93. And at the time I interviewed him in 2011, I think, he was the head of the Russian Financial Oversight Organization, you know, the Russian equivalent of the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, so overseeing banking and financial markets. And I brought him my puzzle, my problem, and he offered me a very interesting answer in which he told me explicitly that liberalism haunts Russia like a specter in the same way that Marx said the specter of communism was haunting Europe. And this was, you know, shocking for me to hear and also very exciting for me to hear. Um, and it eventually became the the title of the dissertation because this this economist uh, Sergei Pavlenko offered me an explanation. In addition, this wasn't this was obviously not the first time he had thought about this problem. He 
offer me an explanation as to why liberalism couldn't become uh, a political project, a mass political project that could command a large, uh, the allegiance of a large section of the population. And his answer had to do with uh, a gradual depoliticization of Soviet intellectual life in the late Soviet Union, such that he understood large sections of the Soviet elite and the Soviet middle class as rejecting engagement with politics entirely of any sort. And building on this rejection, um, the set of attitudes that were carried through into the, into the 90s and 2000s inhibited uh, the formation of deep connections to large-scale political ideologies. So that was a very rich set of theses that I didn't have to develop at all that, that this Russian uh, government economist was able to simply tell me. Um, and that became a thread or a framework within which I tried to understand some of the things that I was hearing in my other interviews. But just I have to say that the dissertation, while it was formed around this problem of trying to understand post-Soviet Russian liberalism will be very different than the future book in which I've bracketed and put off the question of post-Soviet Russian liberalism. That will be the subject of a future book um, in which I'll investigate that in detail. And the dissertation will really be focused on the Soviet period more sharply defined. And I mean, sorry, the book will be focused on the Soviet period more sharply defined and the forms of alternative socialist thought that were um, being created in the Soviet Union. Okay, and you're referring here to the book that and your dissertation will turn into. Let's discuss the development of Soviet and Russian economics then. Um, if I remember correctly, you basically um, argue that there are three or four generations of Soviet and Russian economists. Can you give the, our listeners a brief overview? Uh, or a summary of the development of Russian and Soviet economics and the different epochs you categorize? Sure. So there's, there's a couple legacies from the pre-Soviet period that have a major effect on the formation of the institutions of the early Soviet state and the way that its economics goes. Um, and this, again, I had nothing to draw on. It took a lot of work for me to reconstruct this. So there's roughly three lineages that you can draw from the late imperial period into the early Soviet Union. There's a tradition of statistical research, very detailed agricultural statistics, probably developed more strongly in Russia than almost anywhere else. Um, I don't want to make an absolute claim, but it's certainly possible. So very powerful uh, tradition of agricultural statistics. Second, there's a tradition of economics that comes out of civil engineering. So large scale public works and also sort of large factories. And engineers uh, trained in late imperial Russia were trained to make certain forms of economic calculations as part of their, part of their formation of projects. And then third was the, the Russian radical tradition of populism and Marxism. Uh, and which was strongly inflected from Germany. So you have these sort of three forms of thought entering into um, the early Soviet Union and trying to institutionalize their forms of knowledge into a state which doesn't really exist, which is being created around them. 
So they're acting very entrepreneurially and trying to create institutional seats for themselves with various um, with areas of jurisdiction over different kinds of policymaking, linkages to different kinds of policymakers, control over different uh, mechanisms of governance. And it's this uh, very rapid institution formation in the 1920s at the very time when everyone is trying to figure out what a socialist state ought to look like that generates the extraordinary fertility of Russian economic thought in the 1920s. And every it is well known and well established that Russian economic thought in the 1920s was extraordinary. Uh, so you have the you have the Feldman growth model. Uh, you have the largest projects ever taking place up to that moment in national income accounting. Uh, a, a wide variety of really interesting developments, which then seem to end in the 1930s. So that's the that's the first the first wave of thinking there, and. For me, what's the problem that I'm working on right now is trying to show how an image of central planning as a quantitative and technocratic process of macroeconomic management of the resources of the nation managed from a center within the state, how this image of socialism is developing in the 1920s in the interaction among those three types of actors. So that's the first part of the story. What changed in the 1930s that this approach was maybe given up or that a new approach took over? Well, so in 1928 begins the first five-year plan and sometimes referred to as the, the period is sometimes referred to as the great break um, because there was a wide-scale mobilization of society um, down to its very roots, which also involved attacks on uh, pre-existing forms of authority, including scientific authority. And the Soviet leadership, you know, all the way up to the top or down from the top, let's say, down from Stalin, was not interested in the claims to authority of professional economists that might contradict their policy goals. So the very quantitative um, economists who enabled the idea of a construction of a five-year plan were then seen as an obstacle because they limited what the government could actually do. They said to the government, well, these figures don't balance. There is not enough investment to do the kinds of goals you want to do. You can't achieve the kinds of investment rates you'd like to achieve. The productivity figures will not rise at the rates you want them to rise. And simply in 1930, no one wanted to hear that. The major figures were killed. So, you know, the most famous of them in the West is Kondratiev. But the whole generation of leading figures were killed, were imprisoned. And Western economists completely lose interest in Soviet economics from this moment up until the 1950s. And it looks as though there was a complete lack of continuity, a complete break in Soviet economic thought for about that 20-year period. It's not quite true, but that's what it looked like to everyone in the West. So in this period from the late 20s to the early 50s is basically driven by Stalin being the general secretary of the Communist Party and taking over the power in the Soviet Union? Is that correct? Yeah. 
I mean, it seems it seems that the, the dates match. Okay, so what happened in this um, period to to economics? The major figures of the 1920s were imprisoned, as you said. So who took over, or was economics more or less dead in the Soviet Union as an academic subject? Well, as an academic subject, it continued to be taught, but it underwent several transformations. So Marxist economics, which had also been incredibly fertile in the revolutionary period. I mean, people like Lenin, Bukharin, and Preobrazhinsky were, were innovative thinkers. Marxist economics underwent a tremendous transformation because the image of the Marxist intellectual, and here it's important to understand that there are very different models of what an intellectual or what an economist ought to be. So in the early Soviet period, the image of the Marxist intellectual is Lenin, right? Mm -hmm. And what is a figure like Lenin? Well, he's a great theoretician who is also a great politician, a, re a great revolutionary. And he's, he's, his politics are theoretically guided and his theoretical investigations are politically motivated. Well, you have a whole generation of young economists trained in the 1920s, young Marxists, who envision this future role for themselves as revolutionary theoreticians. But then when Stalin launches the industrialization, he doesn't put them in charge. He's completely uninterested in having good theoreticians, uh, Marxist theoreticians in charge of the industrialization. He puts industrial managers in charge of it, people who have practical experience running factories. So this, there's a, a rapid formation of this managerial class that actually accomplishes the industrialization relatively unguided by theory. And what's left for the theoreticians is a much, much, much more narrow role, where their primary role now is to justify in the, in the terms of Marxist categories the decisions that are made completely without them. So they become, uh, I mean, I don't want to use judgmental language, but they become a really degraded form of Marxist economics, which is always one step behind Soviet practice and just trying to justify it. But this isn't everything that was happening. This is the part that some historians are aware of, but there, was still, there were still other people working. And in particular, throughout the 1930s and 40s, the engineers were continuing to engage in economic research. They were focused on the problem of capital investment. If you're going to be building enormous hydroelectric facilities, How do you decide if it's economically viable? Should you build one huge dam or should you build five small coal power plants? How do you make this investment decision? So in engineering journals, there's still a form of economics being practiced and the censors and the communist party don't even seem to be aware of it. And statisticians also continue to do research throughout this period. So what emerges from the in the 1950s when people start paying attention again uh, is a lot of this thinking that was going on through the 1930s and 40s outside of the official economics world. So just a brief follow-up question here. Did the, um, when in the late 1920s and 30s, economists, or a lot of economists fell out with the government, did that lead to a immigration of some of the best economists? Do you know anything about that? Not very much immigration. There was a wave of immigration at the beginning of the 1920s, but there was not a big wave during the 1930s. Um, while many of the most famous economists were killed at the beginning of the 30s, there were hundreds more 
they continued to work. They just no longer approached the big questions of policy, like how to industrialize or what is socialism. And so they were actually, the, some economists were not just imprisoned, they were actually killed because they were economists. Oh, yes. And we have, we have literal letters from Stalin instructing, the, instructing their execution. Okay, that is um, interesting. Okay, so I think in, when was it, 53, Stalin dies. Yeah. And this sets, um, or what is well known, that this leads to several developments politically in, in the Soviet Union. How did it affect economics? Right, so there's a more technical answer to that and a more cultural answer to that. First is the technical answer. Throughout the 30s and 40s and early 50s, the Soviet economic managers were aware that the system that Stalin built, which was successful for mobilizing resources to fight World War II, was reaching limits to its growth, had many inefficiencies, had many very obvious problems. So everyone was ready for, not everyone, many, many people in the Soviet leadership were ready to do, to try to tr fix it, to try to make it better. And they were very aware that they were not being offered policy advice anymore by the official economists who were smart enough to not give it while Stalin was alive, right? Mm. So immediately upon Stalin dying, there is a call from the higher party leadership. We need economics that is actually useful for policy. Please give it to us. They, um, they reprimand the official economists for failing to be useful. The official economists are very surprised by this, of course. And, but a lot of people do come forward with proposals. And these proposals are coming out of specific problems in the Soviet system as theorized from specific locations within it. So the engineers have all of these proposals for how to think about capital investment. The statisticians have all of these proposals for how to reconstruct the relative price system and how to set pricing for different kinds of goods in order to promote different kinds of efficiency. Um, statisticians that are close to the firm level, the operation of plants, have ideas for how to remake the metrics for evaluating enterprise performance so that you get offer the right incentives to enterprise managers and to workers. So you have all of these sets of practical proposals which very rapidly explode into the press. And that means the reason that they enter into the press is because the party called for it, right? So the party stages discussions in the press. And these proposals um, uh, build throughout the 1950s and sort of reach a crescendo by the early 1960s that is the prelude to the so-called Kasigan reforms of 1965, during which there is, you can sort of roughly see a, the creation of not a consensus, but uh, an, an alternative vision of how the Soviet economy ought to function, uh, one which involved much less top-down planning in physical terms and natural terms, um, much more horizontal contracting between enterprises, much more of an emphasis on consumer goods, uh, the creation of sort of limited forms of wholesale markets, and most importantly, perhaps, judging enterprise performance by profitability. So remaking enterprises as um, budgetary units rather than really viewing the entire Soviet Union as a single budgetary unit in which some parts subsidize others. So there's this reform vision which is emerging in the 1950s and 60s very, very rapidly, 
But as you mentioned, it's happening after Stalin's dead. And in 1956, at the 20th Party Congress, uh, Khrushchev attacks the cult of personality of Stalin and launches a de-Stalinization campaign that goes across all of the arts and sciences, all of uh, culture, all of uh, uh, journalism, uh, through the party itself to some extent. And this was experienced very, very broadly across Soviet society as a reawakening. And it's called, the period is called the thaw, as in Stalin froze the life of the Soviet Union and now it is thawing out and beginning to move again. And it was very, very exciting for young people who were living through it. So people who were in college during this period um, experienced a great moment of inspiration and renewed pride in the Soviet Union, you know, and looking for what could be, you know, the phrase we have is socialism with a human face, right? So they were looking for what could be the forms of socialism of the future that would not be Stalinist anymore. And um, among the people who, you know, were young at this moment were not only the major mathematical economists of the next generation, but also people who became very important politically, like Mikhail Gorbachev. Mm -hmm. And um, those reform visions and the discussions in the newspapers you talked about, were they done or were they uh, led by a new generation of economists or were this the old generation that now dared to speak out politically? It was primarily the older generation. Okay, and did the um, political leadership listen to the economists this time? Did they enact any of their reform visions? Very partially. So they, they, the leadership certainly listened and um, began to put together a major reform package, which began to be implemented in 1965. It's called the Kasigan Reforms, after the chairman of the minister, uh, the chairman of the Council of Ministers, uh, Alexei Kasigan, who was sort of responsible for managing the domestic economy. So it's it's called either the Kasigan Reforms or the Lieberman Reforms. Lieberman was a Ukrainian economist who wrote a series of important papers about the importance of profitability as an enterprise metric. So the leadership did begin to implement some of them, but they were very much afraid to, and they were afraid because they were looking at the revolution in Hungary and then slightly later, Prague Spring. So the events in Prague, the events in the Czech Republic, uh, scared the Soviet leadership very, very deeply. And they thought, they began to worry that if you could uh, reform essential aspects of the way that Soviet socialism worked, we might not be able to control the future path of reform, and it might lead to widespread discontent, or might allow the ex expression of widespread discontent. So with the removal of Khrushchev uh, for internal political reasons and the Prague Spring, most of the reform plans were never implemented. Many of those that were, were sabotaged or rolled back. And the system entered a many a many year long period of stagnation during which no large scale reforms were attempted. And this period of stagnation in terms of economic reform and economic policy corresponded to the high moment of, of Soviet mathematical economic theory. And what did this high moment consist of? Okay, so I, I've described for you already this reform vision, which is a lot being elaborated in the 1950s, but then in the 1960s, you start to get a new young generation of economists who were trained not in Soviet economics, not in Marxist economics, 
not in these Stalinist fields of statistics um, or engineering, but who came directly out of mathematics and physics. And they were young mathematicians and physicists, often first-generation uh, educated people, who had been given exceptional educations in the Soviet mathematics establishment, and then had been drawn into practical research, often via military research. So they had gotten uh, accustomed to solving practical modeling problems of modeling physical systems in the process of, of being drawn into military engineering. And then they enter into the economics world and begin to very self-confidently apply their mathematical skills to modeling economic problems. Now, this is where most of the Western histories begin. But what they take for granted is that these young mathematicians who didn't really have much of an economics background had to get their ideas of reform from somewhere. And they got them from the earlier pre-mathematical generation that we've already spoken about. So the, you know, the ideal of um, dismantling some of the vertical command economy and allowing different forms of horizontal communication within it and exchange, the idea of reconstituting enterprises as budgetary units, um, this was a background to their mathematical theorizing, which they didn't invent themselves. In a sense, they mathematized it. And they came up with innovations of their own and visions of their own, the most famous of which, uh, which there is, there are several books on in English. It was the system of optimally functioning economy, which was a, a dream of a computerized uh, Soviet Union that would solve enormous linear programming problems to compute optimal plans for the entire economy. So it's this generation of the 1960s that went to college during de-Stalinization that were um, lived very privileged lives because they were useful to the military industrial complex that encountered computers in their military work um, that saw Sputnik go into space who had enormous hopes for the future and thought that they could use their mathematical brilliance to make a communism for the future. Uh, and, but unfortunately, they began their careers just about the exact time that the uh, leadership's willingness to reform was ending. So they started developing very complex theoretical models of possible socialisms for a leadership that had less and less interest in trying to implement them. So there was never an, an attempt to realize any of these uh, big computational systems in the Soviet Union to make socialism more effective or efficient? Not really. Now, part of that is not the fault of anyone. Part of it is that they were simply technologically infeasible. The scales of the computations that were required were um, completely beyond the existing computer technology. And a lot of the a lot of the economists didn't know that because they didn't really understand the existing computer technology. They also hoped and dreamed that the leadership would invest much more strongly in it than it chose to. But what they really didn't understand was the internal political economy of the Soviet bureaucracy. And what they didn't understand was that the people who had control over resources, the planners and, and, and managers who had actual control over resources, had no interest in giving up their control to an algorithm. And what at the time was the relation to, to Western mathematical economics? 
did the Soviet economists pay attention to what was happening in Western economics? And also the other way around, did economists in the West pay attention to Soviet economists? So it was mostly one directional. It was mostly um, the Soviet Union, the Soviet economists paying attention to Western econ economics. Their institution, their institutes subscribed to all of the journals. Um, they could go to the library and read Econometrica if they wanted to. They had some limitations on language, uh, so they were most comfortable where things were most mathematical. But they certainly were aware of Western economics, and you can't judge from their citations, unfortunately, um, because they couldn't cite too much Western. They had to make sure that at least the majority of their citations were to Soviet literature. So they would cite Soviet textbooks that were summaries of Western literature instead of citing the original papers. But they were, they were very much aware of the work that was going on in the West. They often interpreted it completely differently. So you know, this is an important aspect of Soviet research in general equilibrium and optimization theory. So they could read proofs from um, general equilibrium theory and interpret them not as descriptions of a decentralized uh, market economy, but by introducing representative agents, uh, interp interpret them as the optimization decision of a single agent, which you know was obviously supposed to be the Communist Party. So they could use the very same modeling techniques and interpret them as applying to um, the Soviet economy instead of to the Western economy. And I guess there was not much of an exchange of ideas directly between Western and Eastern economists, or did they meet at some conferences or anything? Um, directly in terms of face-to-face? -face, yeah, or, or letters or correspondence. Not that much. Not that much. There was some correspondence. So, like, Kupmans was in touch with Kantorovich. Some of his students were as well. There were occasional papers by Russians published in the West. Some of their... Uh, innovations and proofs did make it in to the Western literature. So, you know, two or three Russians joined the Econometric Society, Soviet economists joined the Econometric Society, but it wasn't that much. There were people who had an independent interest and were aware. So, um, you know, figures like Kenneth Arrow were always interested in what was going on in the Soviet Union. Uh, Leonid Hurwitz was always interested in what was going on in the Soviet Union, and he visited several times. Um, there was some degree of interest. A lot more interaction, I'm guessing, and this requires further research, was happening not through the economics profession, but through in the West, um, what we call operations research. In the Soviet Union, operations research and economics were never carefully distinguished. Um, and much of what the Soviet Union called eco economics, we would refer to as operations research, which makes sense. When you consider that the, you know, the question of managing the internals of a firm, managing uh, the internals of a ministry, and managing the internals of the Soviet economy were conceptualized more or less the same way. But in the West, after the first conference on linear programming, the economics profession, mathematical economics, and operations research began to diverge dramatically. So they became very different academic worlds in the West And they were, became, they were still sort of one big field in the Soviet Union. This um, might lead to the question, how did um, or where did 
economic sweet shots take place in the Soviet Union? Is it like in the Western world that it is at um, universities and then a rather decentralized system or was academic research um, also centralized in, in the centralized economy as the, of the Soviet Union? Right. So the Soviet Union was not really built on a research university model. Uh, it inherited the czarist Academy of Sciences, which was, you know, sort of an honorary scientific society. And then the 1920s uh, and 1930s transformed it into a gigantic network of research institutions spread across Russia. And the Academy of Sciences to, um, was organized such that every area of research was unified in a single institution, a single building. And these could be very large. They could be 20,000 people for areas of research that the state thought very important, like uh, uh, aerodynamics, for instance, you know, very important for the, for the military. Or they could be very small. They could be you know, um, a couple hundred people. The majority of mathematical economics took place at the Central Economic Mathematical Institute, or SEMI, which had um, a bit over a thousand researchers at its height. It's a 22-story building in Moscow. And that was where the majority of mathematical economics was, was taking place. It had a couple um, affiliates that were smaller branch institutions, one in St. Petersburg that was the largest. Uh, there was a branch of the Institute of Mathematics in Novosibirsk under Kantorovich that did mathematical economics. Um, there was another, it was a, I can't remember what the full title is. It's like the Institute for Economic Organization of Production or something like this in, um, in Novosibirsk as well. So those were the academic uh, centers for, for, for mathematical economics. And there was one other important center which was the set of research institutes connected to directly to planning. So GOSPAN, the State Planning Commission, had its own three or four research institutes, the main one of which was also important for mathematical economics and for economic reform, but was focused on input-output modeling and quantitative modeling of the economy rather than high theory in the you know, proofs and axioms model. But the universities did very, very little economic research. So a very different system than in the West. Okay, so let's return to the development of Soviet economics. We digress when discussing the development up to the late 1970s, maybe early 1980s. As you said, economists had great hopes and plans to make or to reform socialism, to make it more effective or more efficient and even more humane. Um, but as you also briefly mentioned, The Soviet leadership did not implement any of the plans, and it was also a time when the Soviet Union was facing great difficulties, also economically, leading up to the 1980s. So what happened to economics, and how did they react, or how did economists react to the economic development of the Soviet Union in the 1980s? So the story is a story of the interaction of two generations. The generation of the 60s and the generation of the 80s. So the generation of the 60s we've already talked about. They're these idealist theoreticians. And throughout the 70s and into the 80s, they continue to produce these very complex total reform plans for the government, which is very scared to try to do any of them. 
they are much too grand um, for the government's tastes. They would involve much too severe changes in Soviet economic life. And the economists have no understanding of why the, these changes would not, uh, would not be adopted. So you have this generation that is increasingly becoming bitter and sad and really drinking themselves to death as all of the hopes of their youth are, are not being fulfilled. And then you have a younger generation and the younger generation are in some sense better economists because their first training is in economics instead of in physics or math. So they understand economic concepts, um, economic reasoning in some ways much better. They have much less faith in the ability of mathematical theorizing to solve the problems of the Soviet Union because they saw the, the failure of their teachers. And they, the, the question for them starts to become, well, why, why are, is there no interest in reform here? And what actually does the Soviet Union look like? Because their, the mathematical work of the 60s and 70s had very little empirical research and no understanding of actual enterprise behavior in the Soviet Union. It was always descriptions of how it ought to work, not how it actually did work. So they become more interested in, in economic sociology. Um, they become interested in comparative research across, across nations. Um, they become interested in ways to think about firm behavior. So they become interested in thinking about sort of the microeconomic structure, the, the structures of incentives of managers and bureaucrats in the Soviet economy at different levels. And they're much less optimistic about the possibilities for dramatic whole-scale reform. Now, in some sense, their visions aren't very different, um, at least at first. If you uh, go into the early, early 80s or, or even mid-80s, the reform visions more or less shared by most of the mathematical economists of both generations are various forms of market socialism like Hungary or Yugoslavia. So things that you know happened in the periphery states in the 1950s and 60s but never happened in the Soviet Union. The 1965 reform would have been a Soviet introduction of a mixed system like the Yugoslav or Hungarian system, but it didn't happen. So in some sense, their visions in the middle, early middle of the 80s are just the 60s delayed. Now, when Gorbachev comes to power, who again is a child of the 60s himself, um, they see their big chance. Both generations see their big chance. And Gorbachev asks these economists who are, you know, his contemporaries, the older generation are, um, you know, for their reform plans. And he begins to implement some of them, not the most mathematical versions, but the one focused, focused, the ones focused on microeconomic reform. It's important to understand that there is a deep socialist vision, which is um, running throughout this whole history, which is that workers ought to be empowered, which they truly weren't in the Soviet Union. Now, this isn't something that all economists are paying attention to, but it's something that many of them pay attention to. So we see this strongly in the ideology surrounding like Yugoslavian worker self-management. Well, this also exists in the Soviet world, and Gorbachev is very inspired by it. And he enables the legally he enables the formation of basically the first private enterprises. They were co-ops, but they were not controlled by the state. And he enables a whole bunch of other reforms that economists suggest 
which have the unexpected effect of basically causing the Soviet economic system to disintegrate, to just completely fall apart. Its coherence was destroyed. So the Soviet system, as, it, as, so, as Gorbachev inherited it, was very inefficient, had, was experiencing almost no growth, but it was coherent. It functioned. It reproduced itself. As he began to reform it, it began to fall apart to everyone's surprise, and it began to fall apart extremely rapidly. So the Soviet economy was in complete freefall. Uh, production was collapsing by 1991-92. And at this point, the, the political pressures within the empire are beginning to tear it apart as well. And Yeltsin, his star is rising. Yeltsin is challenging Gorbachev for power and he will not employ anybody who's worked for Gorbachev. So he will not employ any of the great economists of the 1960s who have tried to get their reform plans implemented by Gorbachev. And so he chooses a younger generation. He chooses the generation of the 1980s who had very little faith in large-scale utopian mathematical planning and much more interest in the mechanics of firm behavior and markets. Did this change then also lead to a different style of economics? I mean, was it still mathematical economics just based on other assumptions, maybe using similar models as they were common in the West by then? Or did something new develop out of that, some new kind of economics? Well, whatever economics might have developed out of it really had a chance to happen because the generation that was beginning to theorize the collapse of the Soviet Union and how the transition to market did not stay in academia. They became politicians. So we'll never know really what their careers might have looked like, looked like if they had remained theoreticians. But they were put immediately in charge of ministries, of the central bank, of negotiations with the IMF. So they only really had a very, very brief period at, uh, at the end of the 1980s to the beginning of the 1990s to theorize what was happening in the Soviet Union as it was happening. And during this period, they didn't really put it into mathematical form. They were almost exclusively reasoning verbally because they were trying to describe the institutions of the Soviet Union that really had never been described before. So even though some of them, not all of them were good mathematicians, but some of them were, but they found their mathematics to be irrelevant to the task before them. So Yegor Gaidar, not really much of a mathematician himself, His work was primarily inspired by comparative institutional analysis of firm behavior in different Eastern European economies and um, Western economies. So he read management literature and he read corporate finance literature and corporate governance literature. Pyotr Avin, who was a statistician by trade, and uh, Vyacheslav Sharonin, who was a mathematician, they basically stopped doing anything quantitative or mathematical at all and started reading sociologists' reports about collective farm behavior. So they really become interested in qualitative descriptions of economic behavior of different kinds of agents and trying to theorize how the Soviet state functioned on that basis. And did the, within economics, was there a dominant theory um, developed to explain the breakdown of the Soviet Union? Or was that a, a topic that was disputed among economists how and why it happened? It was disputed. Um, there was no one dominant theory. The 
particular group who became Yeltsin's government, who had um, some degree of control over the path of transition to market, had, and they were a network of about, let's say, 20 people at the core, maybe 50 people more broadly. They had their own in-house group theory, much, most of which was never published. Um, you can find little statements of it here and there, because again, it was a very brief window of time when they were still able to write before they had bigger things to do. They had their own little theory, which they called the theory of the administrative market, in which they described the Soviet Union as, instead of a, a hierarchical structure in which commands were sent down and information was sent up, rather a, a network of interacting agents that were bargaining for advantage with each other and withholding information from each other and trying to obscure the knowledge of everybody else in the network in order to get more resources. So they call this the theory of the administrative market because they say they believe, came to believe the Soviet Union had long ago actually ceased to be a planned economy. As the party's control loosened and as the complexity of the economy increased, planning actually took place via these complicated negotiations among actors trying to hoard resources and information. And this is how the Soviet Union actually functioned through this sort of demonetized set of exchanges of uh, resources and information. So this was, the, this was the vision of the Soviet Union that they brought with them into government. And this also means a liberalization of policies. Did that also mean that economics became more liberal or economists became more liberal at the time? Um, I mean, there must have still been many economists who stayed or who, who entered the void that those who in, uh, went to politics left. So did economists become generally more liberal in the 1990s in, the, in Russia? So it's very difficult to generalize. So the economics profession really enters into a crisis. And that crisis is partly the crisis of Soviet academia as a whole and partly the crisis of Soviet society as a whole. So during the hyperinflation of the 1990s, state salaries were not indexed to match, and the salaries of economists were below subsistence levels. So a lot of people ceased to do research entirely and merely tried to find jobs to survive. Some people emigrated, the, some of the best, you know, all the, many of the best mathematicians, as we know, emigrated. But a lot of people ceased to work at all. Students ceased to enter economics faculties or to want to have a career in science. You had to make money for your family. You had to maybe try to make a lot of money if you could. So a lot of economic research ceases, just stops. The, the Marxists are often in chaos during this period. They really don't know what to think. They're very upset. Um, their values are no longer supported by the state. Some of the Marxist ideologists actually become libertarians. They just sort of flip to the other team and become you know, followers of Hayek. The, mathemat the mathematical economists, while they still might be engaging in, in different forms of research, it's no longer with that much hope that the state will listen. And it's very, it's very varied. It's very hard to find any unity in that research. People pursue very individual research projects. You know, so I, I had one friend who was in his 80s who is now working on like evolutionary agent-based simulations very interesting uh, and he talks with theoretical evolutionary biologists in the West now 
still it's still publishable research, but it's not um, in dialogue with Western economics anymore, for instance. And you have a lot of people doing quantitative work, uh, quantitative analytical work, just to try to figure out what's happening within the Soviet Union. But it's not really up to the standards of Western econometrics. Uh, I guess that when you refer to that the uh, economics or a lot of economics just ceased, you were referring to the late 1990s. Did economics, the subject of economics, recover since? Do you have any idea how it is today, or is it still mainly dead? You know, I don't want to say it ever died completely, but it certainly, the level of activity collapsed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there there has been a reconstruction throughout the 1990s and uh, gathering speed in the 2000s. So there was very quickly an attempt to introduce some Western styles of micro and macroeconomics into, into Russia. Textbooks were translated very rapidly. There were a series of internationalized projects of scientific exchange. So the most important of them probably uh, was the formation of the New Economic School in, I think, 1993, which was a new institution funded by George Soros and created with the participation of a bunch of UChicago-trained Israeli economists uh, who used their scientific networks to bring top American professors to Russia for one semester at a time to teach the beginning of graduate economics curriculums to Russian students. And this school offers only master's programs, which are more or less identical to what you would take at a top Western program. And and then they send their students to PhDs, some of whom come back to the Soviet Union. And the long-term goal was to create a new community of researchers that were internationalized um, who could also be policy advisors and stabilize liberal economic policy, capitalist economic policy within the Russian government. This project has been only somewhat successful, but it has been somewhat. Additionally, the politically liberal wing of Moscow State University broke away and founded a new school called the Higher Economic School which is a a major research university now. It has continued to receive a tremendous amount of government support and funding. And it has created two internationalized um, economics departments within it, one of which has a partnership with the University of Manchester, the other of which primarily employs Russians who got their PhDs in the West. So these have become centers that have been training a new generation of students and doing Uh, research that is publishable in Western journals. But the vast majority of Russian universities outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg have much worse and much different economics research that still owes a lot more to the Soviet Union than it does to um, what is being taught in Western universities. Toward the end of this interview, I would like to turn towards some methodological issues. You already said that you conducted 200 interviews, and you spend, if I remember correctly, two years in Moscow. How many economists did you talk to? Were there 200 different economists, or did you conduct interviews uh, with the same economists a few times? Well, some of my favorite people I spent a lot of time with, you know, informally as well as formally, you know, I mean, in an interview setting as well as, you know, just spending time with them. I really don't have any sense uh, of the total number of people I spoke to because again, a lot of my interaction was informal. So 
I went to conferences, I went to seminars, I went to funerals. So I don't really have a strong idea about how many, per se, people I spoke to. And I guess most of the interviews were conducted in Russian, right? Yes. Was it, um, in general, easy to reach out to these economists? Um, were they reluctant to talk to you or were they very happy to talk to you? And was it hard to contact them, especially the older ones who probably don't have an office anymore, so you might have to track them down somehow? Can you say something can you, or can you generalize your experience here? Sure. Like everything else in Russia, you have to do it through your network. So you, I started with the first people that I was introduced to, which you know I, I went there with about two or three contacts. So one young Russian professor at University of Pennsylvania introduced me to her mentor, who is a mathematical economist, a young mathematical economist in Russia. And the other contact I had was a, a U.S. banker who had known some uh, economists who worked at the Ministry of Finance introduced me to them. And I went to Russia with basically, you know, three or four contacts, but everybody would give me more names. And at the end of every interview, my last question was always, who else should I speak to? And I'd write down the names and I'd write down the phone numbers and it was always phone number. You can't use email. And uh, when I would call, the first thing I would say is like, hello, my name is Adam Leeds. I'm a historian. I call myself a historian because it was easier to understand than anthropologist. Um, from the University of Pennsylvania, Sergey gave me your name. You know, so and so told me to call you. That was always the first thing I said because then they knew how obligated they were to talk to me. Because if it was their friend, they were obligated. If it was somebody they kind of know, they weren't that obligated. But the first thing was to say, who told me to call them? And then the next thing, as I got a sense of their networks of, you know, who was friends with who and who had worked with whom over the years, you know, the next thing I would tell them is who I'd already spoken to that they already knew well, because if all of their friends had already been interviewed with me, then they had to be interviewed by me, too. Or I might actually use the name of one of their enemies if his enemy was famous enough, right? Like if, if they, they would they would want to get their side of the story told to me, you know, if I had already interviewed their enemy. But people were very willing to speak once I had the right introduction. The oldest people actually did still usually have their offices. They might only be in their office one or two days a week, but they still have the office. Um, they usually live pretty close to where they work in whatever apartment they've been in for 20 or 30 or 50 years. So I, could, I saw some people at their apartments instead of at their office. And the old people, of course, are the easiest to talk to um, because they're like old people anywhere. They're retired. They have a lot of time. And they like to tell stories about their lives. So young people have lots of meetings to go to. And, you know, if I wanted to interview the deputy chairman of the central bank, you know, she might only have 15 minutes to give me because she has a whole day of meetings scheduled. But if I want to interview an 85-year-old mathematician, well, you know, we're just going to sit in his living room while his grandchildren uh, bring us cookies. So we can talk all day. And those were some of my favorite interviews. And in many cases, um, these people were very eager to speak to me because they experienced a lot of sadness about how their lives went, in which many of their biggest dreams didn't come true, in which they're living with in a country that they don't really like very much, and they don't always feel like their lives were well spent. So the thought that anyone cared, that anyone would want to write about them was often, uh, I think, a comfort to them. There were no, or not many economists or group 
a certain group that didn't want to talk to, to you at all? Uh, no, everyone was willing to talk with me. This is actually great. And um, of course, this is a great resource, um, oral history and by conducting interviews. But there's, of course, always a danger that you get a kind of distorted version of, of history told. Um, not necessarily because they intentionally tell you something wrong, but as, as we know, memory also sometimes uh, misleads you or their memory might mislead them. So did you have any other sources, such as archival sources or, or their published work, that you could confirm the stories, or did you mostly rely on the stories they themselves told? Uh, well, I have their published work, and very often after an interview, um, they would give me their published work to take with me. So I have a, a huge pile of old Soviet economics books. And often I would feel bad, you know, I would say like, oh, you can't give me your only copy of your book from 1972. And he would say, well, well, why not? I'm going to die soon. No one else is ever going to read it. So I do have their published work. Uh, I do have the secondary literature on the Soviet Union. I did not do as much archival work as I would have liked to have done. But one of my colleagues, um, Jakob Fagan, did a lot of that archival work because he's trained as a historian. And we, we, we share data a lot. And uh, he, we have not really found any significant um, contradictions between our, uh, my interview work and his archival work. But additionally, so much of the story I want to tell is about people's perceptions of their lives, about their feelings about what happened to them about the problems that they saw as they saw them. So I'm not trying so hard to get out of the opinions of and the memories of my subjects. I'm trying to juxtapose them and weave a story out of them. So it was important for me to have a lot of points of view, not you know to, to really explore the network as much as I could so that I didn't feel like I was getting the perspective just from one point. But the structure of the network emerges not only through the connections that people directly have through each other, with each other, but through the commonalities of the way that they remember the world and see the world. So a certain portion of the network, economists that worked in a certain place, will tend to have viewpoints on Soviet institutions, on what the problems of economic um, growth were or stagnation on what theoretical approaches were meaningful or relevant or useless, on what they hoped to accomplish, on how they feel about what they didn't accomplish. So the, the regularities of memory map onto network structure. And um, this interaction of different positions was part of my data and part of the story I want to tell. I don't want to erase it and create one story that is separated from everybody's point of view. My... Last question, um, and we have many young scholars as our listeners who might at, at one point want or have to turn their PhD thesis into a book. And I know that you are trying to, and you already alluded to, that your thesis might actually turn into two books. So how is it your experience with turning a thesis into a book, and how are you progressing with this? It's very difficult. It's going much slower than I wanted it to, and I don't have very much useful advice for anybody else yet. <laughs> okay, but I do hope that um, we can read the first book in the not too far future and then maybe the second book in the mid-future. So, um, Adam, thank you very much for 
um, this great conversation and for being a guest on Settlers Never Parables today. Thanks so much for your wonderful questions, and um, uh, I hope your listeners enjoy. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more. The featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Mid-Air Machine, and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Nobel Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Check out our website, cetrusneverparabus.net, for more information. Follow us on Twitter, cetrusnparabus, and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.